Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapeniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Remember, you can always catch the Bridge Builder Show right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app and now on our YouTube channel, and if you ever miss an episode, just go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, who are you speaking with this week? We're talking with Dr. Daniel DeSalvo. He is a professor of political science at City College in New York and a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We're talking about his recent article in National Affairs, The Trouble with Police Unions. Yeah, police unions, they really do wield a lot of political power. You hear a lot of conversation around that around election time. So I'll be interested to hear what he has to say, maybe why that is and you know how it's come to be. And do we need to reform that? Do we need policy reforms around that? So be a good conversation. Remember, if everyone for everyone watching and listening, if you ever have an idea, send that to me. The email is show at mncatholic.org, or you can just leave us a comment in the comment box below on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined by Dr. Daniel DeSalvo. Dr. DeSalvo is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a professor of political science at the City College of New York. His scholarship focuses on American political parties, elections, labor unions, state government, and public policy. He holds a doctorate in politics from the University of Virginia. He's the author of Engines of Change, Party Factions in American Politics from 1868 to 2010, and Government Against Itself, Public Union Power and Its Consequences. DeSalvo writes frequently for scholarly and popular publications, including National Affairs, City Journal, American Interest, Commentary, the Los Angeles Times, and the New York Post. And he is co-editor of The Forum, a journal of applied research in contemporary politics. Dr. DeSalvo, welcome to the Bridge Builder today. It's great to speak with you. It's my pleasure to be here. We asked you to come on today to talk about uh, your recent article in National Affairs entitled The Trouble with Police Unions. But first, let's just say, why don't you say a little bit about yourself and your research and how you got into these questions of uh, public, uh, public sector unions more generally. Well, thanks. Uh, my background is I'm a political scientist. Um, my original scholarship coming out of graduate school um, was mostly about political parties um, at the national level. And that was what my first book that you mentioned graciously at the outset was about. And But I became very interested in the Democratic Party in the 50s and 60s, and uh, really the important role that organized labor played in the party during that period. And then I was contrasting that in some ways with today um, and, you know, older, you could say private sector unions, which had, you know, figures like George Meany and Walter, Walter Ruther, who had been so prominent in the Democratic Party. If you looked around, well, the old AFL-CIO had sort of receded from view and um, what had really come much more into focus in contemporary politics was um, the teachers' unions, um, AFSCME, more of these public sector unions. But the more I sort of looked into it, um, you know, this was, gosh, 10 years ago now, there was very little scholarship on public sector unions. There was a, a scholarly literature by mostly by economists from, you know, the 60s and 70s when these public employee unions in state and local government were just getting started. But it had really fallen off the 
the agenda. Um, and so I started writing, doing, I got interested. I started doing more research about it. Um, and then, you know, in one of your neighboring states, Wisconsin elected this governor, Scott Walker. And then before we knew it, public sector unions were a national and international uh, subject of conversation and, 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 and intense debate. Um, so I went from there, I ended up writing a book about uh, public sector unions generally in, in state and local government in the United States. And I've continued researching this area. And obviously in recent years, um, beginning in some ways with George Floyd, but even slightly before that in scholarly circles, uh, police unions became an issue, right? There's been a lot of research on teachers unions, which is understandable. Teachers are, you know, the largest category of government workers in the country. Um, you know, with, you could say over, so in that sense, you could see why people would focus on them. That's where they're the mm -hmm. biggest unions, they have the most money, um, they're everywhere. Schools are really important institutions. Um, and people hadn't done as much with police officers, firefighters, corrections officers, um, but that's starting to change. And I guess I'm trying to contribute a little bit here and there to, to that line of inquiry. Let's get, let's get back to basics though, but you know, if our listeners might want to know why do we have police unions in the first place? Where did, what's the origin there? And I think your article uh, discussed that in some detail. Yeah, the origins here again go back to public employees, whether that's police officers or teachers, um, you know, any clerical workers for state and local government were not covered by the Wagner Act, which was passed uh, under President Roosevelt back in the 30s, which really formed the collective bargaining regime that we have for unionization in the private sector. Public employee unions were not part of that. As a result, individual state governments began really with, with Wisconsin between 1959 and the early 80s, allowing for the unionization and collective bargaining of all their public employees, which would include police, or in some cases, some states picking certain categories of workers at certain times. And so it's really in that period, you could say over the course of the 60s and 70s, that police unions gained collective bargaining rights in state and local government and then became unionized. Um, so that it really traces back to that legacy that, you know, and that's the, the formative. Now there's been some change in that uh, landscape as some states such as Wisconsin um, and others have moved Indiana, um, New Mexico, Kentucky, Missouri have moved to restrict or reduce collective bargaining rights for public employees. And in some cases they've touched on the rights of teachers, but in the case of Wisconsin famously, for example, police were excluded from the original Act 10 legislation proposed by Governor Walker. Now, when we think about public sector unions, you know, you're a student of political history and have written on it, you know, Democratic presidents such as JFK and FDR opposed public sector unions because I think the thinking was is you shouldn't be able to bargain against the public interest. Were those presidents right? Or, you know, what are the main criticisms of public sector unions or what would be the response to that sort of line of thinking? Well, I think the main criticisms you could say then and today um, were twofold. One is that allowing, in a sense, um, government to negotiate with itself, right? There's a lot of differences in public sector collective bargaining from what happens in the private sector. And if you want to, we can go into some of those differences, but suffice it to say that the criticisms are that the process results in excessive costs 
meaning you end up paying more for government services and more scarce tax dollars have to be allocated to that. So it raises the costs of government. And second, it introduces a kind of sclerosis, meaning isn't as effective, meaning you, or it doesn't perform as well in carrying out the main tasks that you wanted to do. Um, and in that sense, it sort of just becomes this kind of very rule bound. And obviously with police unions, the work rules governing disciplinary procedures that are enshrined in collective bargaining contracts have been a uh, controversy in the wake of George Floyd. Um, so really it's those two, it's the, the rise that this is gonna increase costs because the unions themselves will be on both sides of the bargaining table. They'll be able to influence management through elections um, and they'll be able to you know, sit down with them in a hotel room with their lawyers and hammer out a contract that's really gonna you know, govern the day-to-day -day operations of government. So those are, I think, the big two. Oftentimes when people talk about public sector unions and curtailing their power and fixing them and reforming them, they go straight to the collective bargaining piece when it might be the case that really their power, their political power might just be needed to be limited so that they're not electing the people who are on the other side of the negotiating table. Are there some distinctions to be made in terms of the breadth of duties and responsibilities a union may have? We don't, just because we have public sector unions, for example, that doesn't mean we need to let them play in elections or, you know, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater because, you know, at least in the Catholic tradition, workers should be able to organize uh, to protect themselves, but also for just wages. So are there, are there sorts of points on the spectrum where we could make some distinctions as opposed to just throwing out public sector unions altogether? Well, I think what we've seen here is obviously in some ways in terms of limiting or curtailing uh, the power of public sector unions. The, the big thing was the Janus versus AFSCME decision at the Supreme Court a few years ago in 2018. And this declared um, that what are called, this gets a little technical, but I'll try to explain it crisply to your read, uh, listeners, is it declared what are called agency fees. That is for people uh, who do not want to join the union, they were required in many, in 22 states to still pay uh, into union coffers for the union to act as their agent in collective bargaining, even if they didn't want to be a member. And the court found that this was a violation of their First Amendment free speech and freedom of association right? the union would go on to speak on their behalf on political matters and so on. So this has meant that in some sense that was seen as curtailing um, union power because obviously if you have uh, many people are say I join, I come onto the job and I say, well, if you don't join the union, you have to pay the union anyway. And most people say, well, I'll just join the union. So that was a mechanism, what are called union security provisions for mm -hmm. increasing both the members and money uh, that union had and a little bit scaling it back so that it probably more accurately reflects the preferences of what workers want. And that's a slow process that we're now seeing unfolding in the wake of jams. We're speaking with Dr. Dan DeSalvo. He is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a professor of political science at the City College of New York. We're speaking with him about police unions and their reform uh, based on his recent article in the journal National Affairs. Dr. DeSalvo, let's zero in on police unions. And there's a lot of um, uh, perspectives across the political spectrum about reforming the police and a general sense that police, police unions are an impediment uh, to reform. What are some of the reforms that people are talking about and where are police unions practically standing in the way? 
Well, I think the big thing to recognize here for first is the amount of uncertainty about what police unions actually do, mm -hmm. which is to say they have been uh, a grossly neglected topic in the social sciences. Um, it's only probably within the last five to seven years that the number of uh, prominent law professors have really taken up the study of political of police unions, but my own field of political science, um, other field related fields of economics and sociology, uh, the the scholarly assessment of, of police unions just it's it's neglected topic. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty about you know we haven't really tested. There's a lot of people making strong statements um, about the role, but I think reasoning analogously from other um, public employee unions, you have to consider that the main role of any union here is to defend its members, right? And they members have a stake in their job. They have a vested interest in their job and being protected. And police perhaps more even than other kinds of employees, right? If you are a 35 year old police officer, you know, with only a high school degree, a policing work is, is a ticket into the middle class. Um, if you were to lose your job at that point, and let's say your pension as well, you know, in effect, you could be kicked out of the middle class. You, you haven't gained skills that are going to be transferable uh, to other lines of employment or transferable. Um, so you have a lot riding on the line. And that means that your union representatives are keenly aware and conscious of that. And that means that they're going to go to the mat to make sure that they feel like, um, you know, their members are protected. Now, for people who want to um, say, well, filing claims of misconduct against uh, police officers or having more citizen committee reviews, police unions are going to be very likely to push back against that, right? Because they're going to see that as threatening uh, their members. And that's, I think, right, the big issue for police unions is really over those kinds of job protections. It's not so much about pay or about benefits, right? That's even when we talk about teachers unions, other public safety unions, those kind of cost issues are front and center. They may be there with the police, but really when it comes to police, it's this third subject of collective bargaining, which is the terms and conditions of employment or sometimes called work rules that set in many places, the disciplinary procedures for officers accused of misconduct. Um, and it's, it's exactly that where I think so much attention is focused. Yeah, so police, I mean, thinking about it one way, police officers want to do their jobs. They want to do their jobs unburdened from as many mandates as possible. And when they screw up, they want to be relieved of as much accountability um, as possible, too. And that's not totally unreasonable, given the danger of their line of work and the judgment calls they have to make in the moment. And humans are going to make mistakes so that it's, it's per perfectly rational, at least from an, you might say, from an economics perspective, that this is how the unions would function, but still there's, uh, it seems to me a, a broad uh, array of perspectives that think there should be some reform. And I mean, the, the killing of George Floyd, just one example of that. We've had all sorts of other stories of police misconduct around the country, cops going back into the streets after abusive behavior. Derek Chauvin himself had a line of uh, disciplinary actions uh, against him and that were taken, but was still on the force. So what's, what's to be done in your opinion? 
Well, I think that's exactly where policy debate is in, in the narrow sense, is exactly how to design a set of disciplinary procedures and protections that are going to we be able to weed out uh, the bad apples. It turns out in a, in a number of studies that in fact, it's no mystery some officers accumulate far more misconduct complaints than others, right? But in some cases, the collective bargaining agreements or state statutes are such that in a sense, um, police chiefs are powerless to remove these officers. And so I think that's where the negotiation is gonna find, is gonna come to a sharp head is how to be able to separate. Right now you have a situation in many places where uh, you have protections for officers, good and bad. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the upside is that you have protections there for good officers who are trying to do their job in dangerous and split-second decision situations. But you also have uh, these same protections also applying to bad officers. And how can you design a system uh, of, of work rules that's going to be able to allow chief, police chiefs and others the discretion uh, separate the good from the bad? Do you have any practical suggestions that you're making stipulating that the research is limited on uh, the incentives and structures of police unions and criminal justice reform? Well, I think that this goes down to, you know, thinking about how to get at collective bargaining in some ways to really focus in on, you know, in some ways, these things haven't been revisited in years. And local governments are thinking about coming up with new negotiations with their police officers. Uh, union, they want to review contract cases. You know, you have a contract that gets into place and this is renegotiated every three to five years, but really you're only negotiating a couple points and you're not revisiting the whole contract. You're just sort of rolling it over year mm -hmm. after year. A lot of jurisdictions would do well as a, just a preliminary assessment to go back and really try to figure out what's in their contract at a first stage. And then second, to really look at the disciplinary records of officers, right? How much of those disciplinary records should be retained and whom they should be available and how. It's in, often the case in many places that chiefs, you know, a new police chief comes on the job and it's very hard for him to, or her to discover uh, who, who's actually on the force that they are responsible for and supervising and what are their disciplinary records, right? So. Uh, those are often shrouded from view by uh, by contractual rules. That would be, say, one area where um, a little bit more sunlight might help us sort out the good from the bad. We hear a lot about the term qualified immunity uh, for officers. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear a major qualified case challenging qualified immunity. What is that and how does that fit into these discussions of uh, police reform? Well, this is a it's a complex uh, legal doctrine that comes out of a set of legal cases is not really something that's ever been legislated. Um, now, a number of the police reform legislation proposed, say, by Representative Tim Scott from South, or Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, and, and some of the Democratic bills sought to either do away or curtail this uh, doctrine, which basically holds that individual officers can't be held personally responsible. Right, and they they can't be individually sued for misconduct. You you're going to sue the agency or the government above them. The idea is well, if officers are going to be, so critics are saying, you know, in short, if officers can be held individually liable, right, this is going to make them think twice before acting. Right, that it's having these kind of extra protections that gives them 
um, greater discretion. My own view on this is that, you know, on technical legal doctrines, and in fact, even on many contractual rights, a lot of officers don't study these things closely, right? They're not, it's not that they say, well, I'm going to, you know, barge into this door, and I know that if something happens on the other side, I've got qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. not really how most officers, good officers doing, you know, tough jobs are thinking. Um, so again, I think that the jury's still out on, you know, how much of a difference that would make. Thinking about some of the broader discussions and, and talking points and sound bites in these areas, you know, we talk about defunding the police. And if we're, let's be reasonable here, they don't mean get rid of law enforcement or public safety officers altogether, but it's rethinking about how we do public safety, integrating, you know, traditional law enforcement methods with social workers, mental health professionals, community activists, et cetera, et cetera. Is perhaps, is the system so entrenched that it needs a rethinking altogether or a view of the perspective that we really need to, you know, zero in on specific issues as opposed to blowing the whole public safety system up? I think the, the, the more likely thing here and the, the wiser course of action is to proceed slowly and incrementally here. Uh, again, I think, unlike many other areas, it's, we're not sure um, about many, there's a great deal of uncertainty. The policy research doesn't decide these matters in a very clear cut way, right? So many of the proposals along the lines that you suggested of, well, we need you know, mental health professionals to deal more with, uh, let's say, uh, certain homeless people that are not taking their medication on the streets of New York or other major cities. And there may be something to that in some cases, but there's also, it's not, in many of those cases, they're complex cases, which is to say, they, you know, you call the police for someone who's mentally unstable, but are they actually threatening someone with, uh, you know, a broken bottle or something like that? Well, okay, you know, maybe that's can be the uh, handled by a mental health professional, but maybe not. Maybe you do need someone that's authorized to use force, right? So, and some of these cases could spin one way or the other. So, I think there's a lot of it's much messier to try to um, say reallocate some of the functions of police to other uh, to other groups. On the other hand, I do think there's something to that and, and there should be some, um, you know, some efforts there uh, to experiment with trying to reallocate some police duties elsewhere. Right? I think if you speak to officers and to police chiefs, they'll tell you that the problem is we're being asked to do everything. And I think surveying them about where other government agencies um, could perhaps develop greater capacity in a system, um, that would be a good starting place. Yeah, I think that's a good point that we ask police officers to be social workers and and play all wear all sorts of hats and play all sorts of roles, some of which they're better suited for than others. So, uh, but taking a Berkeyan approach, uh, incrementalist approach might be, be the better course of action here you're suggesting. I've got one more question that's a sticky wicket and, and be a, a bit of a challenge, but to please dive head in. At least according to the statistics I've seen, persons of color are more likely to be affected by police misconduct, while at the same time, persons of color are more most affected by crime. Um, how, do, how, do, how, do these, how does the first perhaps affect dealing with the latter? And uh, you know, what sort of challenges do you see in that dynamic, um, given the, the racial issues and the bias issues 
latent in a lot of the police misconduct discussions? Yeah, this is, you know, it's a tough last question and a great, great deal could be said about <laughs> it. Um, we have to, you have to have me on for another program to really fully address this one. It, clearly, you know, there are, I think it's fair to say that there is some police are generally concentrating um, where crime is, right? So that, that's the second piece. Now, as they do that, that's going to just by itself increase the likelihood of con contact with, um, you know, black and brown citizens in the and non-citizens in the United States, and that's going to probably lead to more adversarial encounters. But before you even add any elements of bias on top of that, um, which may then increase the, you could say, um, likelihood of stopping, questioning, and frisking um, people on top of that and lead to, to more, you could say, um, tough encounters between the police and elsewhere and, and others. So that's, you know, there's the two things in a way are in a, a negative feedback loop with each other. Indeed. Yeah, it's a really uh, thorny question and, and a challenge, but I think you've unpacked it uh, well for us. Dr. DeSalvo, it's been really a blessing to have you on the show today and unpack some really difficult questions that don't often get a space on uh, faith-based radio. So thank you for that. Where can people go uh, to find more about your work and the work of the Manhattan Institute? Well, I'd recommend to them the Manhattan Institute's website and, and its magazine, City Journal, um, you know, has a lot of... Uh, articles and reports on, on these matters, both the technical reports, which are a little bit more detailed. I have one that looks a little bit at some of the questions you raised um, about reforms to collective bargaining in a narrow sense, but for of course, sort of general coverage and how to think about many of these issues and hard questions of policing um, and its racial dimensions. Um, the Manhattan Institute you know, has a number of excellent scholars um, with, with good and strong views on many of these points. So. I'd start there and your listeners can dig in. Great, yeah, City Journal is a fantastic resource for looking especially a lot cultural issues generally, but municipal policy really in particular. So thanks for mentioning that. Dr. DeSalvo, thanks for coming onto the Bridge Builder program today and thanks for your good work. It's my pleasure. All right, and we'll be back in a moment with our practical action item of the week. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder where we help you live your faith in the public arena. Kit, what's in this week's action item? Yeah, so the U.S. House of Representatives has recently passed the Build Back Better Act, which includes a number of items that do support the common good, families, housing, migration, and the environment. But there's one big exclusion that we want to bring up right now, and that has to do with the funding of childcare and pre-kindergarten programs the version that was passed by the House effectively excludes Catholic providers and a lot of other faith-based child care and pre-kindergarten providers. So listeners, your action item this week is to reach out to your senators and urge them to ensure that the bill does not exclude Catholic schools. We'll include a link in the podcast description for you to easily send a message to your senators. And Jason, I know there's probably people out there wondering why should Catholic schools even be accepting money from the federal government? We get that question a lot. So why should people encourage their senators to ensure Catholic schools can participate in this program funding? Well, these public programs are really not about schools. They're about kids. 
And so the question is, are we going to discriminate between different types of students simply because they have a, make a different school choice? And so government programs aren't really there to benefit schools per se, they're there to benefit students. And so if we take that as our governing principle, then we should have a non-discrimination principle between uh, aid to those who are attending public schools and aid to those who are attending non-public schools uh, private pre-K programs, preschool, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really a non-discrimination here that between programs uh, for people of faith and those who attend faith-based schools and those who attend public schools, we really shouldn't be discriminating. We should help all kids, uh, no matter what institutions they choose to send their kids to. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Remember, if you're listening on the radio, make sure to also check us out on your favorite podcast app. You can then listen at any time, anywhere, or you can watch us now on our YouTube channel for any of our extended conversations. Make sure to click subscribe when you're there and then leave us a comment or question or send that to show at mncatholic.org. And you can always find our past episodes. Once again, that's mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in, Native the Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kids of Peniac, thanks for listening and have a blessed day.